0: a better way forward. There are three reasons to choose our progressive modern treatment program. One, a more sophisticated intake process. Two, technology proven to enhance recovery. And three, the most robust aftercare program in our sector. To learn more, visit us at safehouserehab.com. Three, season eight. From the Playboy Mansion to the Dumpster... This is a story of redemption and enlightenment, and it comes from an old friend whom I've known for 20 years. His name is Tom M., and he comes from New Jersey, where he rose to the heights and also met his end, on the ground, behind a dumpster. It starts like this, and I'll let him tell it. Quote, I was the beneficiary of a very supportive and affluent family. My mom was a psychiatrist. My dad was an investment banker on Wall Street in New York. My mother would listen to the woes of the wealthy in her luxurious office in Princeton, and my dad would gamble millions of other people's money on the trading floor. With my younger sister and older brother, my family would take vacations skiing in Aspen over the holidays, or in Switzerland, spending parts of the summer in France, taking a safari in Botswana or rafting down the Bío Bio River in Chile. My dad would sometimes join us, and at other times, especially when the children got older, it was just mom and the kids. Her job was the best, as she could work when she wanted to and fool around when she didn't want to work. I got the best education my dad's money could buy. We lived in one of the wealthiest suburbs just outside New York City. In fact, it was Princeton, New Jersey, which is named for the university, or is it vice versa? On the surface, it looked like a pretty great family. In many ways, it was. But it was a semi-functional family. Look under the hood and what did you see? You saw that dad was a very driven man, obsessed with making money. I'm talking millions and millions. And obsessed with the fear of losing it. Any of it. I remember one night after he got home from work on the 6.30 train from the city. He was all out of joint because he had lost over $800,000 that day on one deal with an investor who had been indicted by the feds in New Jersey for running a scam. Well, who gets swindled if not the swindlers themselves? I got to thinking about what my dad was really up to over there across the Hudson River. Maybe old dad was not so squeaky clean after all. He didn't talk about his feelings or what he thought of his life. He was more like a coach or lecturer. He did attend some of my baseball games if they took place on the weekend. Volleyball for my sister and basketball for my brother. Football for both boys. That was during our high school years. My mother was there, but she was not the dominant force usually agreeing with whatever my dad would command or do. (laughs) Off to college. I ended up attending Rutgers University School of Business, kind of following my dad half-heartedly for want of anything else that might have caught my fancy at the time. For those who don't know Rutgers, it is just a notch below the Ivy League schools like Princeton, Harvard, Cornell, and the like. Oh, did I say that my passions outside of anything legitimate were beer, sex, and cocaine? Well, beer and sex through high school and coke and beer and sex through college. I'm surprised that I made it through, but I'm one of those characters who has the ability to cram for an exam, score a solid B, and then forget what I read. All the time, every time. That was the ethos of the day. Bob Dylan, Acid Rock, Jimi Hendrix, Labatt's Blue Canadian Beer, Shots of Mescal, Lots and Lots of Weed and Coke, and willing young females. Purple haze was the gestalt of those days. Catching the fever. In my junior year, that is the third of four years at Rutgers, I caught the cooking fever. I had fallen in love with a fantastic Asian woman who was the chef at a Japanese-French fusion bistro in Manhattan. I promptly decided that the culinary arts were for me. My dad persuaded me to finish my degree at Rutgers first, and you can hear this from many a parent, just so that I had, quote, something to fall back on in case my dream dream turned to dust. Upon my graduation from Rutgers, I enrolled in one of the most prestigious culinary schools in the world, the Institute of Culinary Education in New York. There were two reasons. One, I deserved it and was used to the best. And second, my dad could afford anything and was more than willing and able to pay. That two-year period was one of the most intense experiences of my life. Unlike university, they actually made you do the work (laughs) and prove that you had learned something. And if you didn't do it right, you, you did it over until you got it just so. Strangely, I liked it. For the first time in my life, I began to believe that I had something to give as opposed to just getting by and indulging in every whim. If that meant that I had to make sacrifices, so be it. Upon my graduation, I was bestowed with a chef's hat, although it would be many years before I was sufficiently advanced to wear one as the head of a culinary team. Onward and upward. I was a very ambitious young man. I had graduated with a special distinction at the age of 24 from one of the world's greatest culinary institutions who counted many of the best-known chefs as graduates. Some would even come back and teach us the art of basting, blanching, and broiling, as I like to call it. I decided to shoot for the top right away. Instead of laboring in obscurity in a small French restaurant in New York, I landed an interview with Playboy Enterprises in Chicago, who had an opening for an entry-level chef at their club in San Francisco. Playboy was a tightly controlled enterprise back in the day. And every job applicant in the service area was thoroughly vetted by the home office, including that of the Playboy Bunny, believe it or not. I worked with a feverish ambition to reach the top. It wasn't long before my, quote, genius was recognized in San Francisco, and I was made head chef there after two years. I got to travel to Playboy clubs around the U.S. to teach the other chefs about the latest trend in culinary enterprises. Actually, I traveled around the world doing that. A few years into my gig, the head chef for Playboy Enterprises keeled over and died of a heart attack at the age of 47. And the company just up and asked me if I would be interested in taking his place. What do you think I said? I suspected that the head chef died of a heart attack that was induced by the massive amount of cocaine he was snorting on a regular basis. I knew this because I would do coke right there with him and with the other staff and with the ladies who were happy to exchange sex. For Coke. That's the way it was in those days. It gets interesting. Over the next few years I enjoyed a life that many might dream of but never get to live. I traveled the world as head chef for Playboy Enterprises. There were two week stays in London, Paris, New York, and Tokyo. Staying at Playboy clubs, partying all over town, flying first class. I even took supersonic Concord round trip flights from New York to Paris at some crazy expense. Was very important for an important guy like me to be able to cross the Atlantic in three and a half hours instead of eight, right? I was in a big hurry to get to the next place, whatever it was. I became an addict not only of cocaine, but also of urgency. Cocaine was provided to me free by my so-called friends in the business. Playboy was making so much money from its magazines and its clubs, it could afford to pay its employees ungodly salaries, all except for the bunnies. Exploitation of women was really at the heart of that money-making machine. I see that now, but I didn't have a clue then, nor would I have cared. Beginning of the End Before too long in about three years, I started to miss appointments, calling in at the last minute, saying I had a fever or whatever. It was an embarrassment to the management to have to call off my engagement with chefs in training at a high-end Playboy Enterprises conference or to ask the media to reschedule a hard-fought interview with a prestigious publication like Bon Appetit magazine. I was called onto the carpet twice. When I hadn't made the proper course correction in my behavior or attitude, I was summarily fired. That was the beginning of a ride to the gates of hell that lasted five years until I hit bottom. I went back to see if my parents would help me, and they did for a while until I started stealing from them, either by extortion... Or by outright theft of valuables from the home. Resisting all attempts to get me into treatment which my parents could easily afford, I chose a life on the streets of Newark, New Jersey, a well-known urban landscape occupied in parts of town by junkies, hookers, and dealers. I tried dealing on my own, but abandoned it after a dealer ran me off his turf with a Glock 9 millimeter handgun <laughs> like that sticking on my face. I got a job here and there as a cook in a diner or a second-class restaurant, kept snorting coke and drinking cheap wine, staying in homeless shelters when I could get in. Winter is an unforgiving time of year in Newark, New Jersey. One morning I found myself waking up behind a dumpster with only one shoe in sight and realized I could have frozen to death right there. That was it for me. My fall from grace and high living was now complete, a life of fear, desperation, shame, and profound hopelessness was over, even though I didn't know it at the time. The ride back to Sanity, I went back to the homeless shelter and asked about help for addicts trying to quit, and the good people there pointed to a local community health center just down the street, and they also got me a pair of shoes. The lady at the front desk there told me to catch the bus to a local detox center. She gave me the $1 I needed for the fare, and I was on my way. At the Detox Center, I learned of a county-funded outpatient program that would not only pay for a room to stay in for 30 days, but also provide counseling for several hours a week. That's where I met a fellow who introduced me to my 12-step program of choice, AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. That was over 30 years ago, and I can rightfully say that I made it back from spiritual and financial bankruptcy to the good life that I live today. I'm still in love with cooking, and have managed to go on and own and operate a nice family-type restaurant of my own. Where did I get the inspiration that turned the corner for me, outside of just me hitting my bottom behind the dumpster, you know, in Newark, New Jersey? I found it in the first tradition reading of the Alcoholics Anonymous book called 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which states that if a man does not abide by spiritual principles, the penalty is sure and swift. He sickens and dies. I read that line over 25 years ago. That main thought is a big idea. That big idea guides my life to this day. Living by spiritual principles, attending several AA meetings a week, and giving back what has been so freely and generously been given to me. Living the AA way of life, a life of surrender to the good, has been the greatest blessing a man could ever have. Close quote. So what did we learn from Tom's story today? Number one, a fine pedigree and all the material advantages one could possibly want does not make anyone immune to the lure of addiction. Two, getting caught up in the high life creates an artificial sense that it could never end when the end is closer than it appears. Three, even getting fired from one of the greatest jobs in the world wasn't enough to wake Tom up. The addiction had overpowered him, clouding his judgment, as to the reality of his condition. Four, it took him almost freezing to death behind a dumpster to finally get him to admit defeat. Five, guided by spiritual principles as taught by Alcoholics Anonymous, restored Tom to sanity, allowing him to live a happy, sober, and productive life. Our podcast is sponsored by SafeHouseRehab.com, a modern approach to recovery. To learn more, visit us at safehouserehab.com.